0: If you're an individual or business looking to make stellar video or audio content, check out Black Bear Media. For more information, go to blackbearmedia.net or email us at info at blackbearmedia.net. You're listening to More Than This, the podcast where Christian faith and reason explore reasons for Christian faith.
1: Life not a simple
0: If you enjoy our show, please consider supporting us for as little as $1 a month on Patreon. Check out our site at www.patreon.com forward slash more than this pod. Thank you. Steph Kreider doesn't have a political home. As a pro-life advocate, she has distanced herself from the pro-life movement. She talks with us about being homeless in the two-party system and how the parties fail to promote human flourishing. Enjoy. Welcome to More Than This. We are a three-headed attack today. It's great. Got uh, two ladies up in the house, literally up in the house. We are uh, safely distanced in my basement, elegant studio confines right next to the exercise bike. Uh, So (laughs) you know we live in large. Got Got our massive American flat screen TV down here. We're doing all right. So today we have, uh, I'm joined by Brooke, Old Faithful. Brooke, Mm -hmm. not old, but she is faithful.
1: (laughs) Though I just had a birthday, so I feel that as well. Oh, (laughs) No.
0: That's right. You want to have birthdays like four days apart. We do. Oh my Mm -hmm. goodness. And I'm I'm older than you. Happy
1: birthdays. Thank you.
0: (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. And that voice you just heard, that was Steph Kreider. I call you Steph, but we're fancy. Is Stephanie like? Steph's fine. Okay.
2: I like it. That's my Twitter handle, Steph Greider.
0: You really can't rise above that in the basement anyway. (laughs) This is kind of a Steph zone that we're in. And yeah, we just can't, we can't Mm -hmm. afford those luxuries down here. (laughs) Just trying to survive. Nobody's got the extra syllables. That's right. I may be really giddy this episode, so I'm going to have to rein it in. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You're
1: starting off that way. (laughs) I know. I know. Have you had a lot of uh, Coca-Cola today?
0: No, I have not. I have not. Nothing, nothing to blame, but just the natural energy of getting to be around people I really like. It um, is good. So, and I wanna, I wanna unleash uh, the full power of Steph here in a second. Um, <laughs> I'm excited. We're having Steph on at a, a, a good time. I'm gonna say, uh, welcome to the middle, the middle space. Uh, Thanks. Steph has a new podcast out with our friend Latanya. Uh, just dropped yesterday.
2: It did. It's called. So what do we have? And we're asking lots of questions.
0: And uh, one of the premises I've inferred so far, maybe incorrectly, is that you are, and it's part of what we're going to talk about today regarding a certain issue, is that uh, we kind of feel like people without a country when it comes to the the two-party system. Is that some of what's driving your podcast?
2: Yes, I think that and just the general lack of nuance in any conversation. Part of the problem is that our conversations are all taking place online. And that's in part because that's where we are as a society, I guess, and also because of COVID.
0: And I saw your Facebook post. So well done.
2: Thank you. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> See, So I think uh, our goal is just to move beyond the the sort of two party talking points. Like, every issue as soon as something happens there's talking points on one side or the other there's one way to view it versus this other way and those are the only two things you see people talking about but i know people are far more complex than that and people have far more opinions than what we're seeing out there and so we're just trying to create space for thinking through things like that and kind of showing what where the shortcomings are of just having those two points of view
0: yeah and i that's Honestly, you kind of wrote the thesis statement of our podcast as well. So, uh, we're saying, you know, more than this is more than, you know, the either or.
2: Yes. So, Mm
0: -hmm. you're going to, we're going to get along swimmingly. I agree. So, one of the things that uh, we've not talked about a lot that happens to be one of the issues that Steph is talking about is the issue. I don't even like calling it an issue, but the reality of abortion and we all without even thinking, you just think automatically, what are what are the, the two pro words that come to your mind right away? Anybody, throw them out there. Pro-choice. Pro-choice.
1: And pro-life. hmm mm-hmm.
0: That sounds like uh, a pretty hardcore dichotomy. hmm And uh, I don't know, Steph's gonna drop some knowledge on us, probably with some t- statistics, because she's fancy. But the little looking I've done, if you look at the actual data on people's views of abortion across the country, that dichotomy does not nearly encapsulate even thoughts about the unborn, right? Much less the rest of life. Right. So we already know we've got inadequate categories. So it sounds like uh, it's time for Stefan Lathania's podcast or our podcast to step in. We've got a job to do. I'm on it. Yeah.
2: I'm here for it. You are on it. Literally.
0: But Steph isn't just some rando we pulled out of the street uh, to talk about this topic. (laughs) No. Why don't you tell our guests a little bit about your background with the pro-life cause? I won't say however you want to phrase it.
2: Yeah, sure. Um, I generally refer to it as the pro-life movement, I guess. Um, But I have worked, well, I worked for Ohio Right to Life for um, almost 11 years. And Ohio Right to Life is the state affiliate here in Ohio of National Right to Life Committee. Um, both of them were established in the late 60s, 1967, to advocate against abortion. So if you look into your history a little bit, that's around the time that that debate was really becoming public and becoming an issue across the country. Different states were passing different laws. And up until Roe v.ersus Wade was decided in 1973, there was just a patchwork of regulations across all 50 states. And so it's somewhat similar to um, the gay marriage uh, movement I guess I would call it Um, in that, you know, up until the Supreme Court decided in 2015, 16.
0: Sounds about right. It was late, late Obama, late Obama.
2: Yeah. Um, Up until the Supreme Court acted on that, different states had different laws. And really, that's democracy in action. That's the country working through these issues on our own state by state ballot issues through the legislature, you know, whatever you want to call it. So Ohio Right to Life has been advocating in Ohio for pro-life laws since 1967. I was honored to be a part of it. I started work there in 2009 in a very different political environment. Um, 2009 was right after President Obama had been elected to his first term. And um, the first thing I was thrown into were the debates over Obamacare and whether or not there should be abortion coverage in it, which was just a really interesting time because even then, there were a significant number of state legislators and congressional members who were pro-life Democrats. And so we had real pull in that debate because we were able to work through those members and make sure that you know abortion coverage wasn't just included in all Obamacare plans, for example. Right after that, in 2010, in the midterm elections, all of those pro-life Democrats lost, every single one of them, almost without exception. So what we have now is a much more divisive debate when we see it publicly. So at the congressional level, especially, um, each side has become just so entrenched on one side or the other, the pro-life side and the pro-choice side. And they really are just um, sticking to kind of these very absolutist views. And in reality, most Americans are somewhere in the middle, like you were saying, Dave. When you look at polling it's like 12 to 17% in the extreme on either end. So either on the pro-choice side or the pro-life side, but that leaves like 60% of Americans in that middle section, which is definitely, I mean, that is a solid majority.
0: Yeah. And it's definitely lends itself more toward a continuum than a binary.
2: Right. So Mm
0: -hmm. again, we have these sort of, even the way we talk about things, we just sort of like to go to those extreme views, even if they don't really fit us, we wear them like sort of, you know, bad-fitting clothing, we're like, well, it doesn't really fit, but I guess I don't want to wear that other thing. So that's interesting. I'm already hearing you teasing something out. You said it was a different political climate in 2009. You talked a little bit about the backstory of some of the shift in the Democratic Party. Where are we now and how did that help contribute to you stepping
2: away from Ohio right to life? Mm, Good question. So now I think we are at this point where we have two presidential candidates and all of, a lot of this centers on this you know, presidential election. And I just, for the record, want to say that local elections matter so much more. I don't think people understand that the turnout for local elections in an off year like 2021 will be are it's like 20 percent of voters. So I just need people to know if you hear nothing else I say in this whole episode, seriously, hear this, that you need to vote in your local elections, because that's also how we end up with better presidential candidates. That's generally where presidential candidates come from. They all were, at some point in time, a county prosecutor or state legislator, with the exception of President Trump. And that's sort of something that came out of left field, but we can get to that too. Anyway, all of that to say, I kind of got to this point because both parties are just so polarized. So Joe, Joe Biden is an interesting candidate to look at. 30 years ago, he was considered pro-life and he called himself pro-life. Two years ago, he still supported something called the Hyde Amendment, which protects federal funds from paying for abortion through Medicaid. Six months ago, he flipped his position on the Hyde Amendment because he became the front runner in the Democratic presidential race. And so that's that's what happens. This is what our culture demands. It's what our party lines demand. And it's really not what I would say the American people demand of either party, it's just that those are the people who are out there raising the money and having a voice in it. So it's true on the pro-life side, too. I think that the pro-life side has really uh, driven much and much further to the right and demanded this sort of purism and absolute thinking.
0: Because I, I I don't know this for sure, but I'm pretty sure didn't Trump was not always a strident pro-life person, was he? Oh, no.
2: No. I mean, I won't get into issues of character, but I think that's probably very telling. If you just want to look at what his lifestyle has been for 30 or 40 years, you know, the women who've accused him of sexual assault, I have to imagine what other consensual relationships might have happened and where those things led. He made a public statement about being pro-choice in like 2000 or 2001 that was on like a radio show. And so he's since sort of backpedaled that and explained it away saying, you know, he had a change of heart. And to be fair, a change of heart is what pro-life people want to see. I mean, that's kind of what the pro-life movement is after. But... It's just that for President Trump, it's really only come in this political form. And it feels like once he kind of got a taste of that approval, then he was just like, well, I'm all in on this. And that's where he's been. And that's the number one reason that most evangelicals give for voting for President Trump Mm -hmm. is that he's pro-life.
0: I'm starting to sort of see a distinction between you in leaving your job, you didn't you didn't sort of take your pro-life badge off and throw it on the ground and throw a fit and be like, screw this, I don't, I'm not, you know, now I'm pro-choice, it, it, it didn't go that way, but there's a difference between being hardcore, integrated with the pro-life movement and being pro-life. Is, is, would you say that's fair? Yes. So what? What? how do you see those differences between aligning with the pro-life movement and being a person who has a pro-life ethic that we, we sort of find roots for in our Christian faith?
2: Yeah, I think it's really interesting to kind of see how those things have shifted. So, I mean, again, President Trump is all in on sort of this political pro-life side. And so there's this talking point out there that he's the most pro-life president ever. We don't need to go through his record, but I promise you that I can refute that. And the way I would do that is just to say that most of what he's done is stuff that every Republican pro-life president has done before him. And so it's not particularly exceptional. The one thing he has done that I will say other Republicans have not been willing to do is defund Planned Parenthood, but all the same, they're not truly defunded. So anyway, neither here nor there. The point is, there's definitely this political pro-life affiliation that I feel like everyone aspires to and pushes for as though it's the most important thing, when in reality, there's an entire pro-life ethic that the Catholic Church, frankly, has weighed out very well. I'm not Catholic, but I align so much with so much of their theology and their writings of the church over the last, you know, 500 to 2,000 years that values all life, you know? And so this really came into conflict for me uh, with the Black Lives Matter movement in particular, and frankly, under all of President Trump's presidency, I mean, his entire first term in office, it started with him demeaning you know, Mexicans as rapists, for example, with his very first campaign announcement in 2015. And it's not gotten better since then. The way that he talks about quote unquote illegals, the way that he just writes off the Black Lives Matter movement, the way he condescends to people like Colin Kaepernick and just pretends that they're like lowlife, un-American, I don't know, sports players. It's just painful, all of it, all around. So really, the death of George Floyd, I would say, was the catalyst for me leaving my position in that it was it was like the last straw for me. When he was out in the Rose Garden signing some bill and he said, well, George Floyd should be happy that the stock market's up today. And that was all he had done to publicly acknowledge George Floyd's death while cities were literally burning.
0: So you have not talked about the unborn a lot toward the latter part of your explanation. So pro-life do you clearly mean something more than a battle over just the status of the unborn and the ability to end a pregnancy?
2: Yeah, I think the mission statement of Ohio Right to Life, and I think it might be the same as National Right to Life, so I'm not sure, is to promote and defend life from conception until natural death. And so they leave out like the death penalty, for example. We don't have to debate that today. I would say that's also inconsistent with a pro-life ethic. But The whole point of it is that we value human dignity. We value the sanctity of human life. And when we talk about the unborn, it's really easy to say we're talking about innocent human life. But I don't think innocence matters because all human life is sacred. And so, again, that sort of gets you to that death penalty part. But also somebody dying at the hands of the police arbitrarily is not pro-life any more than someone getting an abortion
1: so have have you seen this shift in the pro-life movement to the pro-life movement used to have larger margins for some
2: of these other life issues? It's hard to say. I think there's a woman who is a former executive director of Ohio Right to Life, and she's a Democrat. At least she was. I don't know if she still is, to be honest, but she was. And she told me she was part of the early feminist movement, too. Well, whatever, whatever wave of feminism happened in 1972. She was part of that movement of feminism. And she told me, and I thought it was so fascinating, how betrayed she felt by the feminist movements for supporting abortion. They were anti-war, they were pro-women's equality in all these ways, right? And then they supported abortion, and she said she felt so betrayed by that because it's such a tool of the patriarchy. I'm kind of smiling as I say that, which maybe you can hear in my voice, but it's just so... It's such a twist on things to me, but there are all kinds of pro-life groups that have sort of been marginalized more so in the last 10 years. I would say as the pro-life movement, like really drew some hard lines politically, but there's a group called Feminists for Life and they come at the pro-life arguments from a feminist perspective. I think their work is great. There's a a group called New Wave Feminists who also are pro-life and they do great work that's pro-life. And um there's a group called secular pro-life. They are much the same and they're not religiously affiliated. So the pro-life movement is a wider tent than what people see and what they associate as pro-life.
0: Now it's interesting though, because you would find pro-life is as a movement is equated with one party, right? Uh Mm correct. Largely coterminous with being Republican. Uh Black Lives Matter, which under your rubric you can say what you think about the movement, and I'm thinking more of the sentiment. Just stick at the sentiment that yes, Black Lives correct. Matter, uh, that anybody can disagree with that with a straight face seems preposterous. They want to politicize it, make it about the movement. But under the rubric you just gave, Black Lives Matter or Black Lives Sentiment would be a pro-life movement as well. Yes.
2: Like and actually, um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with John Perkins. He's a amazing Christian leader, um, formal civil rights activist who's... Um, in his 90s now, and he's written prolifically. But one of the things he wrote about—he's <laughs> <Ba-dum-bum. laughs> written prolifically about um, civil rights issues and race and the church—and is, I mean, he's just amazing. But in one of his last books, I don't know if it's his last, but one of his last, it's called "One Blood." His parting words to the church, I think, and in it he bemoans the fact that Christians didn't start the Black Lives Matter movement. He says that it's it, it's condemning of the church that that movement started outside of the church. And I don't, I don't know that he's ever spoken on pro-life issues, to be honest, but certainly he lives a pro-life ethic and adheres to pro-life teaching. So I think those things all go hand in hand to me.
0: It's so interesting to think about how small the pie gets cut you know, so we talked about pro-life is actually a big tent, but when pro-life is actually used as a term, it references the unborn, basically. But also within that, pro-life advocates and political advocates have tended to go after sort of one strain of strategy, right? It's the one we hear about a lot, and it's the political angle, uh, mostly legislative, right? Uh, So we hear about having judges appointed, right? That's that's something that comes up Mm -hmm. a lot. What do you think have been uh, kind of the costs and effects of the pro-life movement focusing on the legislative or judicial strategies, like keeping it just in the political arena?
2: Um, I think as a political force, the pro-life movement is actually very smart and very strategic. I think that over the last 30 years, especially, they have been very laser focused on what they're doing. And you'll hear pro-choice advocates say the same Um, I think it was in 2012 that the former head of NARAL, which might stand for National Abortion Rights Activist League, but I'm not, don't quote me on that, but they're pro-abortion. Their former head resigned because she was so alarmed by the enthusiasm gap between the pro-choice and pro-life side. And she was a woman in her 60s or maybe 70s at the time. And she wanted a younger woman to take the helm of that organization to re-energize their side of the movement. So I think on the pro-life side, there actually is more political energy and a better political strategy. Now, where it sort of falls short for me is in its affiliation with this particular president. So if your argument all along is that human lives have dignity and everyone's created in the image of God and therefore worthy of human rights and a chance at life then it starts to fall short when you start to talk about people of color and you start to talk about issues like Black Lives Matter. Um, I think, you know, they've been very effective in passing pro-life laws. And sometimes it doesn't seem that way. So at Ohio Right to Life, you know, we passed numerous laws that would be enjoined by the courts and are currently not enforced even at this moment. But that doesn't mean they were not worth the time. I think there is you know, some public education benefit of talking about it, which we can talk more about later, but just having the conversation out there and publicly, I think matters. And also Ohio is positioned really well that if Roe versus Wade were overturned, which is the goal again, of getting these pro-life justices appointed, then Ohio would, uh, would stop abortion at the point a heartbeat can be detected or would ban abortion, excuse me, at the point a heartbeat can be detected. So that's effective for Ohio. The problem is that on the whole, I'm just not sure the strategy is that good, because if we expend all of our political capital uh, defending President Trump and all of his shortcomings that everyone seems to be willing to overlook, and that includes his character and a million other things, if we're willing to overlook all of that and go all in to elect this president, and even if he does appoint two more pro-life justices, and if Roe versus Wade is overturned, so all those things are like the stated goal. Then it goes back to every state to decide abortion policy, all 50 states. And I don't think that the pro-life movement will still have enough people standing behind it to do that after this election. I think that we have sacrificed our witness by buying into and supporting President Trump and his lack of character and moral clarity. It's heavy.
1: Yeah let's let's sit without a moment moment of silence yeah. yeah
0: so you love trump i can tell that <laughs> i can tell that so i I made you take your red hat off just because we don't wear hats inside <laughs> the house here no oh clearly not so i'm wondering if you don't feel like the political strategy is the best go for there's a distinction in my mind between unfortunately lowering the overall number of abortions and making abortion illegal right they're not necessarily exactly the same thing
2: correct i think there's overlap but they're not the same there's
0: it, it, there's 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 overlap sometimes more than i would probably give it credit for but um, as someone who still really does care about um the rights of the unborn uh and all of life, the right to life and flourishing across, you know, until natural death, where do you kind of feel like you fit politically right now? Like, how does that fit as you think about a 2020 election with, you talked about two candidates that have kind of crossed streams, right? Like you had a pro-choice candidate who's now touting himself as the most pro-life president ever and someone who was at least in a limited sense pro-life that is now pro-choice.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I don't fit. I'm like a square peg and a round hole. <laughs> and you know what? Um, someone I, I worked for before, who I respect greatly, um, in the 2016 election, told me that leaders make tough decisions. And I was talking with him about not knowing what to do in that election. And he just said, you know, you can, you can leave that box blank, when it comes to president, you can write someone in, you can vote for a third party, but leaders make tough decisions and you probably need to just make a choice. Great advice. It's real good advice. And I sit with that even right now. I mean, this election, it still applies. You know, I won't commit now to voting for any particular candidate, but I do want to be very clear that I don't think voting for Joe Biden is a sin. I am pro-life. I believe in the sanctity of life, for the unborn specifically, and I don't believe that God will judge me if I cast my vote for Joe Biden.
0: Brooke, you lived, you lived overseas for 10 or 11 years, so you would hear probably, uh, you could sort of hold it with amusement or shock or horror, but detachment, like whatever was going on in American politics, and then you moved back last year, mm-hmm. and you're coming up on an election again. How are you feeling uh, how are you feeling in relation to the, the, the two-party system such as it's construed now? Do you do you feel like you have a political home? How are you kind of thinking about things?
1: I think Steph described exactly how I feel as well. I think I feel really frustrated and like my uh, arms are tied and I'm in a straitjacket, you know? After witnessing uh, what it looks like in the Netherlands, I think it's 21 parties at the moment and there's... Um, Uh, christian socialist party which is ethically uh conservative like morally conservative and socially liberal and it's a really amazing party of some friends that are uh involved there in leadership and you think why don't we have something like this here you know it's kind of what party you would probably want to lead if you started a party here (laughs) (laughs) Um, i don't want to start a party (laughs) so that's and then part part of it Part, By the way, th-
0: your outfit says
2: otherwise. <laughs> 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 I'm wearing pink and white. <laughs>
0: it's fun, fun, fun clothes. Actually, Brooke, Brooke has a party party shirt on too. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but it it is really frustrating. Yeah, and another thing that I'm thinking in the back of my head right now is in the Netherlands. So it's the same deal as here. Abortion is legal. Maybe it's a little bit easier to access abortion. I'm not quite quite sure on the data on that. But in in the actual workings out, like if a woman chooses to have a child and she's not married, for example, the actual uh, providing of support and the choice for life is massive there. I have a few friends that are single moms and I've said to them on, on a couple of occasions, like, you do not want to be a single mom in America. Mm-hmm. Like what you have and the support you have. I mean, one friend even got a bit of money to buy a vehicle for herself and she got a really great bike, like with a bike seat. And that was provided because she needed, you know, and this isn't like side things that you're applying to churches and side organizations to get this stuff. No, it's the system for everyone. So that's also an infuriating aspect of this where... The pro-life people aren't advocating for some of these things like uh, daycare and uh, childcare and, uh, you know, better
2: funding for schools. So it's yeah, it's so, uh, that brings up so many interesting please, points. One thing I do want to say, Netherlands might actually be more conservative than the U.S. on abortion. I'd have to look it up. OK, but the United States is one of only seven countries in the entire world who does not ban abortion after 20 weeks. Wow. Consistently. In Ohio, it's illegal. In probably 15 or 20 states, it might be illegal. But it's not illegal across the board. So when you hear people saying, and I've I've had a lot of friends ask me about this, actually. um, When you hear people saying, like, you know, in New York State, abortion is legal up until the moment of birth, that's actually true. And before we banned late-term abortion in Ohio, there were two abortions at 35 weeks into pregnancy. Oh, my god! In 2010. Isn't that astonishing? Yes. So I don't know, but I would guess that Netherlands is not in that group of seven. Wow. The other ones are like North Korea and China. Only and seven. Isn't Cambodia that interesting? and countries that we don't model anything after.
0: Not
1: a great right. reference group. Mm-mm. And the right likes to lump Europe and say like they're socialists. We don't, you know, this yes. sort of thing. But fascinating stuff.
2: Yeah. I mean, there's exceptions to that. Um, you know, one of the the less heartening things um, I think two or three years ago, Finland and Denmark issued a study or a press release or something basically touting that they had eliminated Down syndrome. But there is no cure for Down syndrome. There's no, like, therapy in utero to prevent Down syndrome. So what they were really saying is that abortion took care of all Down syndrome. Yes. And they put it out like it was this positive, great thing about their countries. So, you know, there's no... There's no real like clean lines around any of this is what makes it so difficult, but people are not wrong when they say that the U S has some of the most liberal abortion laws. And also that we do maybe the least to support mothers of any developed nation. Certainly.
0: Yeah. We're, we're not really great with maternity leave across the board, irrespective of partnership or marital status, uh, just across the board kind of suck. Yep. Um, yeah, it's bad. But, um, yeah, it is interesting that a lot of the, uh, there's a, a big overlap of people who are, you know, part of the pro-life movement or sort of lean that way or vote that way and are very anti entitlements as well. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, just I can't fully get my head around it. It's like, boy, uh, there just seems to be, this is where we come back to this sort of lack of nuance. You said that earlier. Um, And nuance is a word that I love. So I'm a therapist. So we like words like that works a (laughs) spiritual director. She likes words like that. Steph is Steph. She likes words (laughs) like that. (laughs) Um, But one of the things I've really noticed in our political debate is that most of our affiliation is really about who you are willing to extend nuance to. So if you think that the black lives matter protests are, uh, You know, you you're comfortable sliding in riot instead of protest, and you see them as just sort of destructive. You do not extend nuance to explain the life uh, situation and actions of people of color in our country. You don't like you just see say them, but then you know if you are on that side of things, you understand. You know, all of a sudden you're talking about systems of injustice and oppression, and you know power structures and all of these things, and you have lots of nuance. And then, you know, on the conservative side, they have lots of nuance for themselves as well, right? So we don't extend nuance to anybody who's on the other side of things. Like we, we just sort of paint them monolithically. But then on top of that, and probably extended from that, there's no nuance in the way we talk about things. If the data just around one topic tell us anything or, or suggestive, it would suggest that there is a midspace and a lot of people are not so excited about the polarization that we see. So I'm wondering, aside from having a couple rockin' podcasts, which is no small thing, you know that's that's a big thing. Well, I'll I'll just I'll throw it to you, Steph. How are you feeling? Because you didn't, like I said, you didn't like tear up your pro-life card. Uh, actually, your move away from Ohio Right to Life was actually a more serious construal of what it means to be pro-life in a full-orbed way. So, what kinds of things are you thinking about now in that mid-space of? lacking nuance in a, you know, Trump camp over here and a Biden camp over here or or more. I don't think anybody on the progressive left super happy with Biden. They just want Trump out. Right. So what what can you or we do to kind of like talk to people who are theoretically across the aisle but might be fairly adjacent to us in terms of morality and ethic?
2: Yeah. There's so much. Where to start? I think uh, before I left Ohio Right to Life in the last year, I was really working on envisioning what a post-Roe Ohio would look like, because it's possible that's on the horizon sooner than we think. And if that were the case, in Ohio, there's about 20,000 abortions every year. So if Roe were overturned, in theory, it would mean there's 20,000 more babies being born in the state. So what do we do? To care for those babies. Like, are we prepared for that? Are we prepared to care for their moms? Probably not. There's a lot of shortcomings in our system, you know? So I started to have some of those conversations within the organization, also outside of the organization. And it's really interesting when you get down to it, the things that are happening all over the place. So there's 145 pregnancy centers across the state. And so those are basically just centers. Some of them are clinics, some of them are not, some of them mostly function like counseling and also providing material support. But if a pregnant woman comes in and says, I'm pregnant, I don't want to be pregnant, they basically will say, here's all the ways we can help you. They don't refer for abortions, um, but they often are located next to or very close to an abortion facility intentionally. So it's almost like this last resort a woman can go to before going through with having an abortion, which, of course, is a very permanent decision. So they will provide material assistance, and that includes anything from like diapers and cribs to maternity clothes and things that the mom needs. Some of them, you know, provide job assistance, trying to help women find jobs that will accommodate them. Um, a lot of them have social workers on staff, so they do find at least what limited social programming is available, what they qualify for and getting them signed up for those things, especially Medicaid that's huge. Um, really, just about any pregnant woman qualifies for Medicaid in Ohio. It's the income level is so high. It's If you don't have insurance, like you pretty definitely are going to get coverage through Medicaid. So that's a good thing. I think that we could use almost a more holistic approach to that. And it's so hard to envision the US ever being something like what the Netherlands is or what any of the European kind of socialist countries are. And our population is just much different too. I think there's a lot of challenges to just implementing those policies here. But a lot of it and this is where I start to lose people. So we'll see how you guys hang in here. A lot of it hinges on just the way that we treat women and we philosophically... I'm out. Believe- <laughs>
0: <laughs> just kidding.
2: See, uh, The way we uh, philosophically see women's role in society. Yeah. And so I recently had an op-ed uh, printed in the Columbus Dispatch on this, but um, it was just using the pandemic experience to show how little we value working mothers in this country. So like you said earlier, Dave, um, there still is not guaranteed paid maternity leave in this country. If you're lucky enough to work for a big enough company with 500 or more employees, then you – is it 500 or 50? Can't remember. I can't believe I don't know that. It doesn't matter. It only covers 40% of Americans is the point. 40% of Americans are covered by FMLA, Family Medical Leave Act, which means that you can take leave from your job if you have a baby, but even then you're not required to be paid. So you may or may not be paid, even if you have access to that.
0: And, and isn't the deal that also your position, you're guaranteed to have a position, but it's not necessarily the position you vacated.
2: Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's a similar position,
0: which is a big deal.
2: Yes. Within certain companies, I can imagine that's huge. So that leaves out so many workers and it only qualifies or it only covers full time employees too. So like a single mom working at McDonald's for 35 hours a week is not full time, does not have access to benefits and doesn't get FMLA. So if she gets pregnant, she can try working up to her due date at McDonald's, which sounds pretty miserable, although I know many women do it. Or she can leave the job, but then she, you know, then people look down on you like, oh, you're just like milking off of welfare. Like there's just so many shortcomings to all of it and I don't understand, I mean I do understand. I don't for a long time I did not want to see what I think is the truth and that is that we just don't value the role of working women. Like nothing about the way we operate shows that we do really. Well, I think also
1: you could say we don't value women yes. in America. Mm-hmm. And then you see that because we don't value working women. Mm-hmm. It's it's extraordinary.
2: Yeah, somebody else I was having this conversation recently and somebody else pointed out the fact that, you know, if a woman wanted to stay home with her kids and she was married even most couples still can't even quite afford to do that. It's very difficult to live comfortably on one income when you have a family to support. So even if women wanted to fulfill that role, it's still really difficult to do.
0: Yeah, I mean my my wife makes considerably more than I do, you know. It's like yeah, if, if we were, if that was her election that she wanted to stay home, I don't know if we could do it. I mean, we mm-hmm. I literally couldn't afford all of our life, you know what I mean, like on, yeah. on my income, which is sad. Maybe I shouldn't have said that on the air, but everybody knows my <laughs> wife makes more than me. I think it's <laughs> really think common, it, though. You can tell just by looking at us. <laughs> like... Uh, Brooke and stuff are dressed in like nice clothes i'm wearing like a stained t-shirt and athletic <laughs> shirts it's kind of my my covid combo. Oh, david it's hartman
2: like, you're too hard on yourself that's true we have a soft spot most here. days i wear yoga <laughs> pants so you guys really looked that's out true. today
0: you're, you got to like i'm getting out of the house that's
2: like. right i left the house <laughs> <Exactly>. today <laughs> you're the podcast
1: made us leave the house of course we're gonna dress somewhat good <laughs> I don't get to wear these
2: clothes anymore it's true
0: they're in it's their finery true. i should have acted like i was leaving the house even though we recorded here
2: it's have. all mental games this <laughs> pandemic
0: might have spruced up <laughs> but even even then just we know division of labor from studies like doesn't fall equally especially when it comes to parenting responsibility it does not fall equally across uh, heterosexual couples right right like, it usually tends to go toward women for a- any number of factors. Right. So even the reality on the ground, there's uh, a great old study by Arlie Hochschild called "The Second Shift." It's really, really good. Uh, she's a sociologist, and I read it way back in grad school. But just talking about emotional labor and the second shift yeah. that women put in when they're done with their actual job. Interesting. Uh, and I don't. I would not say those those things have changed at all in the thirty some years since its publication. So. Yeah, I, I'm with you. I'm with you, Steph. I think that it's always one extension away. And I think there's a lot of, from the pro-life side, there's a lot of shame still about somebody who would have an abortion. There's, again, no nuance, right? Mm-hmm. So they probably have a very set persona in their mind of the kind of woman that would uh, choose to end a pregnancy. And and you're damned if you dam- do, damned if you don't, because then yes. if you do carry the child to term and keep the baby you're still sort of braided as a certain kind of woman that would have considered an abortion and therefore sort of morally inferior and not not worth assisting, right?
2: Yes, I think, so it gets real dark real fast when you look at kind of those like ethical extremes on either side. So it's like you described on the pro-life side, there's very much um, this... And this, I mean, this doesn't describe everybody. I'm talking about the extremes here, but there's very much this undercurrent of people who are very judgmental of women who one get pregnant outside of marriage. I mean, for lots of reasons, but my gosh, can you imagine the scandal? And two, who would have an abortion? What kind of woman would do that? Right? Like these are the things those people say on the left. It's equally dark just from a different perspective And that is, well, those babies should never be born. They're better off being aborted. We don't need more babies born into poverty. We don't need more babies born who are disabled. And that's really dark, too. Really dark. So neither side quite gets it right. But I think when we start talking about, you know, women who actually have abortions, I'm going to drop some stats for you because I feel like this is always what needs to be done. Let
0: me put my steel toes on. (laughs)
2: I think, um, I think everybody has in their mind a picture of what a woman who has an abortion looks like. I think people think of teenagers or college-age women. I think they think of somebody who's like sleeping around or maybe made a mistake in a relationship or whatever and got pregnant unexpectedly and wants to have a future, and therefore she goes to Planned Parenthood, which is this nice, clean, shining facility, who treats her well, and she has an abortion. And that's that. That's what people think. But the statistics don't show that at all. So bulk of abortions um, by age are women between the age of 20 and 34. So that does capture that kind of college age. But also, more than half of women who have an abortion in any given year already have children. So they've already got one or more children. More than half have had one or more abortions before, for whatever reason. Most of them, the the vast majority, when asked why they're having an abortion— And this statistic comes from the Guttmacher Institute, named for Alan Guttmacher, one of the first presidents of Planned Parenthood, after Margaret Sanger. So he's not pro-life, to be clear. Most women give the number one reason for having an abortion as economics. They lack the means to support a baby. The number two reason is they lack relational support. So I think people just sort of tend to gloss over or put in our minds, like the idea of what a woman who has an abortion looks like, and I think it's much different. I think that abortion clinics are not the places people think that they are. I think in movies and books, they're portrayed as these like nice regulated medical facilities. And in reality, they look more like Kermit Gosnell's than not. And he's the guy who was charged with murder ultimately for killing a woman and performing an illegal abortion in Philadelphia about five years ago. Um, Meaning that these are facilities that aren't regulated the same way hospitals are because it's political. So they've used their political clout to get out of those regulations. They have doctors who often are subpar and are shunned by the medical community. If abortion were such a commonplace and morally permissible thing, far more OBGYNs would be doing it. It's something like 1% of all OBGYNs. And they're just not not the top of their class when you look at who the doctors are who are doing this. Some of them aren't even licensed in obstetrics. There's an infamous abortionist in Southwest Ohio who for a long time ran a late-term abortion clinic. Now that late-term abortion is illegal in Ohio, he is doing earlier term abortions. But he is not board-licensed in OBGYN. He's just a doctor who was performing surgical abortions for a very long time. So there's just this very like dark underbelly to all of this, and I mention that because I think most people if they're just living their lives, will never have any reason to think more about abortion. If you aren't having one yourself, if you don't have a very close friend who's had one and who's willing to talk to you about it, um, if you don't have a family member who is facing that sort of situation, then the odds are good you just go about your life and don't think about abortion. And that is very understandable. But they estimate that something like one in four women in America will have an abortion by the time they're 44 years old. So that means that within your social circle, there is very likely a woman who's had an abortion and she's just never talked to you about it. Because, again, those extremes and what you might say to them.
0: It's so interesting that it kind of comes down to rights on both sides. Like that's how it's framed. Right. So the background is they really left and right at their poles, sort of wrap around and touch in a circle and eugenics. Mm -hmm. It's all about who should or should not breed. Yeah. So it's legitimation on the left. Like we have a sovereign right to one body over another, but also because we understand oppression and injustice and all these things and really probably shouldn't bear a child into this world. You've kind of had enough. I, I, as an extension of this, my brother and sister-in-law are Catholic and they have the family to prove it. Like as (laughs) sort of the stereotype, they have six kids. First two were adopted last four biological. Love it. Awesome. Um, And they uh, are part of a homeschool co-op and several other Catholic families that have large uh, families as well. I can't remember the wording, but one of their friends was on vacation with her six kids uh, and a woman walked up to her in Cincinnati, I think, and just said, you should have aborted most of your children.
2: Oh my like, god! Like, like
0: you should have, like you shouldn't have this many kids. Like you, you should have aborted most of your children. Just that there are, there's a faction in the world. I'm not saying that's everybody that feels emboldened enough and right mm-hmm. enough to come up and say you've exceeded your limit. You know, like mm-hmm. you, you're doing an injustice to the world. Like we need to control the population, and even worse so if you stereotypically are someone who's disadvantage you can't offer a kid, quote unquote, a good life. That stuff gets really dark and really messy real fast. And I think the left and right kind of agree on the kind of person who should be able to have kids.
2: Yeah, that I think that's definitely true. There's also, you know, historically, um, it's, it's interesting to look at the history of it. So Margaret Sanger, again, the founder of Planned Parenthood, was one of 12 children, I think, and became very pro-abortion because of the poverty she lived in. Mm. And You know, to some extent, you can empathize when you hear her life story. But then it takes this very dark turn, and she's in all these interviews. Um, I don't know if it's Walter Cronkite, but it's somebody who's very prominent in like the 50s. And she's saying, like, well, clearly we need to keep the population under control. We need to make sure that um, we're not having more undesirable. People and children born into the world, basically. So she was unapologetically part of the eugenics movement, but so was like Woodrow Wilson in nineteen twenty, yeah. you know? Yeah. I mean it was mainstream, which the, is the
0: Nazis got it from us.
2: They did. Isn't that like awful? Which
0: is crazy to think.
2: Yes. I think people forget that though. Like we don't we don't really think about that history very often. So eugenics was a very popular scientific theory in the early 1900s. Well, let's
0: let's touch on eugenics for people who may not have heard of it. We're kind of oh, using yeah. an insider mm-hmm. term. So what do you, what what are we talking about when we say
2: eugenics? So eugenics is basically the pursuit of weeding out any sort of undesirable trait. Selective through. breeding. Yeah, selective breeding. I was going to say breeding. It's, it's also like mm-hmm. clinical and gross. But Just so yeah. um, so any baby with a disability, for example, would be aborted or abandoned even sort of under that. And the Nazis became like the masters of this, like you were saying. Um, Like the experiments that they did on Jews in concentration camps had to do with eugenics. They were like trying to change their eye color. They were like trying to weed out certain physical ailments. And they just did these tests on people who were, you know, imprisoned and had no rights. And so...
0: We And we've done the same with black women in our country as well. Ooh, uh, yeah. uh, and and not that long ago. Mm-hmm. We're talking like 1900s here. We're not talking right. like you know, 1750. Like, no.
2: Right. And so I don't know, to be honest, at exactly what point in time that kind of fell out of favor. It might have been with the Nazis. Like we conquered Nazi Germany and then we were like, oh, this is bad and we should never do this again, which is a good lesson to learn. Mm-hmm. But That still kind of rears its ugly head. And so in the 70s, that came back as this very popular concept of population control. And so there's a famous author whose name escapes me, but I'll think of it, Peter something, who wrote this book. Uh, It was basically called like the end of the world. And he was talking about how the population across the world was going to explode to the extent that we would no longer be able to feed the number of people on Earth. So at the time he wrote that, I think there were like three billion people living on Earth. And now we're up to like nine billion does that sound right?
0: Got got some more billions for sure.
2: We got a lot more billions, <laughs> but there was some number, some arbitrary number that you know scientists had calculated at which point the Earth was no longer going to be able to sustain life, and so that's when you saw things like forced sterilization programs that happened in socialist countries. And when I say socialist, I mean like communist Russia and India before it became a democracy. So they had like forced sterilization efforts and initiatives among specifically poor populations um, that also happened across Africa, I believe, and somewhat in the U.S. There are certain court cases, and I believe these go back to the 20s as well, where the Supreme Court ruled that a woman shouldn't reproduce because she was mentally handicapped. And so she had no right to reproduction and she had been forcibly sterilized and they upheld that. So there's like a real dark undercurrent of all of this that I think people don't know. And again, if you don't have a reason to know, you don't have a reason to know. But I think we could all do with some education on understanding kind of where this came from. And there is this very dark uh, history, racist history of Planned Parenthood that they recently have started to own up to. Um, I was very pleasantly surprised to see this. But Margaret Sanger was, in fact, a racist because she's a eugenicist. And she wanted specifically to target the quote unquote Negro population within New York City to, for, for abortion for birth control and then later for abortion and Planned Parenthood has followed that pattern over 50 years now, 60 years, 70 years of locating in certain places in the city. And you can see it in the abortion statistics. So African-American women, you know, make up 12% of all women in Ohio, I think roughly, but they have something like 45% of the abortions in Ohio. I mean, it is completely disproportionate Mm -hmm. to the size of their population and to ignore that doesn't do women of color any favors. It's not helpful to any debate about racism or economics or women's equality. And we, and again, you have to believe both that Black Lives Matter and the Unborn Lives Matter to take those things fully into account and say that Black women deserve justice. They deserve equality. They deserve so much more than what they're getting that so many would turn to an abortion because they don't have resources.
0: And you also put that double whammy on top of that with uh disproportionate infant mortality rates. Yeah. As well. Yeah,
2: they track just the same.
0: It's it's very interesting. Uh not interesting. It's horrifying. Um my gosh. This could go a while. I but, know. but we're gonna have to rein it in. Yeah, I that's w- fair. W- one one last question. So these are my words, not Steph's, or Brooks, Brooke can speak for herself. All the party people. Um, <laughs> it doesn't seem like we've been, you know, we've kind of held the same. You said you think that there is a pretty efficient laser like strategy on, you know, in terms of pro life uh, movement. It hasn't seemed to crest the big wave, though, of getting Roe v. Wade overturned and actually eradicating, uh, making illegal abortion in all 50 states. So, I don't see that happening in the next few years. Maybe I'm cynical. Even if Trump prevails again and appoints, uh, you know, appoints apports, appoints a few more judges uh, to the Supreme Court bench, but it sounds like there's a lot of other levels of society that are really important when you think about being pro-life more broadly. So, for people listening uh, that may be in that mentality of like the best way to uh, be pro-life is to Vote Republican and try to get Supreme Court justice on the bench to overturn Roe v. Wade. Where would you challenge them to expand and think about these levels of society, uh, whether it's you know corporations or nonprofits or community groups, or where do you think are some really good areas that people could also live out a pro-life uh, ethic?
2: Well, first, I think I don't know that I need to convince your listeners of this, but just in case, I think. We don't really understand how ridiculous it is that this pro-life energy is always being pushed towards elections and politics, always. So if I go to like any given pastor and I say, I am really worried about the issue of homelessness, what can I do? That pastor, hopefully, is going to say, here are several homeless shelters in the area, and here are ways you can support them, and here's, money, here's where you can give money to be effective— And, you know, get involved in this ministry or start a ministry that's doing X if you think that's something that's lacking. Um, Same thing with almost any other social issue, right? Like if we're worried about education inequality, um, you know, we're told to go volunteer in certain schools or support certain ministries and after school programs and whatever. But when I go to most pastors, and I'm not misspeaking when I say most, I think this is true, and I say I really care about the issue of abortion, what should I do? They say, make sure you vote pro-life. Make sure you vote for Donald Trump. And it just doesn't make sense. Like it falls so very far short of what we could be doing for women and for their children. So I just want to challenge that line of thinking because we're all going to hear it even more in the next 60 days. till this election, 65 days, it's coming up there's more to it than voting pro-life there's so much more so like I said there's 145 pregnancy centers in Ohio it's a similar number in most states Um, certain states are more hostile to pregnancy centers than others Ohio certainly is not but there are ministries I guarantee nearby that work for pregnant women and for their unborn babies so find one I will help you find one email Dave I'll help you I don't know how we'll make it happen You can find them. Give money. I mean, money is like the easiest thing you can do. Do a diaper drive. Just tell your friends that, you know, you really care about abortion. And to do something about it, you want to collect diapers for your local pregnancy center. I mean, do those things. Talk to local elected officials. There are so many more opportunities. And I think people just don't hear from pro-life voices enough. So in Columbus, for example, um, the city has a women's commission, Um, created by the mayor's wife, and so she heads it up. There is, to my knowledge, not a single pro-life woman on that commission. But if more pro-life women kept applying, they might take it seriously. Because they talk about infant mortality all the time, and like we've already discussed, infant mortality and abortion rates go hand in hand. I mean, those are all issues affecting the same communities. So there are certainly ways to be involved that I think we're just not even looking at because we write this off as a political issue. And because it's emotional and because it's difficult, it's easy just to not even think about it but I would also challenge people to remember that there are I guarantee you women in your circle who've had abortions and so when you're talking about this, just be very like careful in the language that you're using yeah one way or the other
0: and that's and that is only the the pre like pre-birth part of being pro-life right Right. Mm -hmm. so so -hmm. there's all kinds of things i think that you can uh, get involved with and support in terms of uh career exploration career development uh housing initiatives for housing housing is huge so i mean i mean so big in the life of a mother who's like sort of on the edge of being able to i mean if nobody makes a decision to have an abortion it's like flippant like yeah i mean it's like the i mean you can't paint that With that brush. It's not like, man, what do I want to do today? Mm -hmm. Am I going to go to the beach? Am I going to go to the library? I'm going to have an abortion. No, it's like, it's a hard decision for people. Mm -hmm. It's not one made lightly. And there are so many things attached to it. And housing is a big one. I know. Mm -hmm. So housing and uh, income. So these are, these things are. If I could
2: choose one, I would say childcare. Childcare. Childcare is crazy expensive. I only have one kid in daycare now. I pay the equivalent of college tuition every year. And Wow. There are a lot of families who can't afford that, and that's families, not just single moms.
0: And now we're get we're getting far afield in my mind because I could go on this for a while, mm-hmm. but it is the one of one of the biggest reasons that people are incentivized to stay on public benefits. Yes,
2: and to drop out of the workforce
0: because you can't get a job that pays enough to make the difference of what you get on entitlements and still pay for childcare. Right. Losing your childcare and Medicaid is a killer. Devastating. It's devastating. Mm -hmm. Who can make that choice? Hmm. But we demand it all the time, sort of blithely. Yep. Yep.
1: And welfare doesn't include support for childcare in the U.S.?
2: So it does, but it's very limited. So I want to say the income cutoff is like $19,000 a year is oh. what you have to make to have your child care covered at 100%. It's okay. called Title 20. It's a federal program. Okay. Um, but there's all kinds of shortcomings to that. So for example, if you got a raise and then you made $20,000 a year, you wouldn't qualify anymore. Oh. Also, you have to have two weeks worth of income or two weeks at your job before they'll start covering it. So I don't know how you're supposed to go to work for two weeks without leaving your baby somewhere safe, yeah. but you're just supposed to, so you can prove that you have this job, and then they'll pay for your childcare. So, like pregnancy centers are a good example. Sometimes they will step in and pay that deposit okay. for moms, and they'll pay for that, you know, first two weeks of daycare. But if not for that, you know, yeah, I don't know what you do. Goodness.
0: Okay. Heavy. Anybody have like a knock knock joke or anything to say? I, admit, you know, this, I don't think there's a. I bro- have
1: nothing more to say. I'm just still like swimming in all the learning. It's a lot I've engaged in. So yeah, I imagine others are feeling the same way. Wow, I Lots can recommend a book. About. Can I
2: recommend a book? Please, please do. Um, there's a great book by a guy named Charlie Camosi. He's a bioethicist. Um, he teaches uh, ethics at Fordham University. And um, he's a pro-life Catholic who is not a Republican. If you follow him on Twitter, that will become apparent very quickly. Um, He's written many books. Two of them are very good. One is called, or two of them I've read, I guess I should say. (laughs) One is called Resist uh, Throwaway Culture. And the other is called Beyond the Abortion Wars. And again, no one wants to engage on this topic, but you should engage on this topic. It matters. It matters so much. And we have to pay attention to it.
1: It's great what's his name again charlie camosi charlie camosi and what's the name of your podcast
2: again so others can oh, hear yeah. your brain in Thanks. action more our podcast is called so what do we have we explain the name in our promo in our first episode so go find it it's me and my friend lethonya butler who is a genius and so it's really fun
0: there's a lot of smart on that podcast <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of a lot of fun too i've i've Listened, I've listened to all your episodes now. So, oh, thanks. Yeah, and thanks. Uh, subscribed. So fantastic stuff. Steph, thanks so much for being with us today.
2: Yeah, thanks Thank so much so. for having me. This is really fun. Life not a sequence
1: program from the sky.